So Hone interviewed me for a couple of hours on Saturday morning in which we shared experience, which again is me saying to him, as though I was being fairly cheeky, uh, I suppose I, I know about as much history as you, but what I meant was I'd shared the kind of history that he would have had in Australian schools and then the, the background to literature and so on that he would have had in his university training. And that was my introduction to Cranbourne. So you can see there was shift attitudes to military service, to uh, services in the uh, schools and uh, attitudes to sport. You're listening to the Cranbrook Living History Podcast Series. I am your host, Dr. David Thomas. In 2017, I was fortunate to be able to speak with Harry Nicholson, who sadly passed away in January 2021 at the age of 96. In this episode, Harry recounts his experiences at Cranbrook, working with Brian Hone and Mark Bishop, building a library of books with students, and his lifelong love of ancient history. Good morning. Good morning, David. Nice to see you. <laughs> Thank you for coming. And you've been associated with the school for a long time. Yes, I'm now the oldest living master. But we do have our other friend that we were talking about. Uh, there was a boy before me, and he joined the year after. So that I'm now the oldest en- enrolled master, anyhow, in the school. Mm. In, in that period... There obviously that you were associated like between the 1940s and the 1980s, and let's just leave what happened after that just for a moment. But you must have seen a lot of change in that time. There were enormous changes going on, and uh, they started before I came, and they kept going afterwards. Such changes as the uh, interruption to uh, the games and the idea that. Uh, not all boys should play rugby, and some should uh, play soccer. But that had begun before, because when I was at the university, my mentor was Professor Alan Stout, and his son was coming here, and he had he was on the council, but they didn't want the compulsory sport that the school laid down then, and the headmaster had insisted that he do it, and Alan Alan Stout talked to me about the uh, work at Sydney High School, and I told him all about it, and so he sent his son Edward over there, and they left Randall, but he'd been discussing uh, many subjects with uh, Hone, of course, at that time. And Hone was supporting the case against anti-Latin in university for university preparation uh, on the matriculation board, and they fell out particularly over that, as both the professors of philosophy that I was under were strong supporters of continuing the classical tradition for entrance to the universities and believed that the universities shouldn't be training for practical work. That, uh, they were objecting to new subjects that were continually shifting. They were, one of them at those days wasn't uh, fashion, which a friend of mine has just graduated in. <laughs> but such a thing would have uh, horrified them because they thought that the universities should be studying the subjects which are universal and that all the other things should be put in institutes which could change rapidly with changing circumstance. So so, so, uh, so why was Hone against Latin? Hone was against Latin, as I found here, because he was interested in pastoral care. And there are certain boys who just could not grasp an additional language. French was a bit much for them, but Latin as well was too much. And the balance of interests and activities that they had turned against it. And some boys whose IQs aren't very high 
find it not only daunting to do it, but it makes them feel inferior. So there are many reasons for wanting to move boys. But at least he kept the idea that all boys should have an introduction to Latin and see how they got on in the first year. And finally, of course, the uh, the Wyndham scheme caught up with that and introduced it uh, so that there's an introduction to languages in the first year of secondary course. I hope that still continues. Yes, sir. Because mm. it changes. But uh, we were very interested in getting uh, broad and well-adapted courses at the time. And when I came here, I felt a sympathy which I didn't feel at the university for taking Latin off the compulsory courses at school. Uh, I could see the kind of boy that certainly would gain nothing. In fact, it would hold him up for a long period of the day when he'd be better off doing something that really kept him active and alive. Mm. So that sort of thing was going on. But not only was that, but the end of the war had come the year before I'd come to Cranbrook because I was going in for the Presbyterian Church, as you know, at that stage, and was uh, very much influenced by the theologians of the day, particularly uh, Martin Niebuhr, who argued that if you... Uh, took a pacifist case that opened a vacuum into which dictators pressed. And, of course, he used examples of the past in his famous books on the subject, as well as the case of Hitler and Mussolini. And uh, I came over to talk to Mervyn Brumley, who was wanting to leave the school to actually join the ambulance or something of that sort, because he was a pacifist and didn't want to stop up. And I did manage to persuade him that Christ turn the other cheek didn't involve modern pacifism. And uh, I spent uh, a couple of afternoons coming over talking to him. That was my introduction to Cranbrook. So you can see there was shift. There shift all there. along from attitudes to military service to... Uh, services in the uh, schools and uh, attitudes to sport and all that sort of thing. So Alan started to introduce me to Ted Tapp because he knew that when I first started philosophy, I was more interested in history than philosophy. And uh, he introduced me and I used to come over and go swimming at Nielsen Park with uh, Ted Tapp. And it was actually Ted Tapp, not Alan Stout, that recommended me to home because he was appointed to New England and it would be better if he started straight away. But his contract to Cranbrook required him to remain here for at least a year. And uh, that would have upset the apple cart for mm. the university mm. and himself. So Hone interviewed me for a couple of hours on the Saturday morning in which we shared experience which again is misrepresented there as me saying to him, as though I was being fairly cheeky, uh, I suppose I, I know about as much history as you, but what I meant was I'd shared the kind of history that he would have had in Australian schools and then the, the background to literature and so on that he would have had in his university training because I did two years of English, two years of history, but then the four years of philosophy for the, the honours course mm. Mm. and had switched over. <clears throat> and so my background in some ways was like Hearn's with a great deal of what I knew about particularly English history gathered from reading novels and plays and things of that sort. Uh, so oh. we had a, a shared background and in fact there is a sort of shared background of history in most of the schools because of things like Anzac Day and uh, other memorials. And but, but, the, but it's good for you to correct that, because it does sound cheeky, yeah. doesn't it? Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, you're saying to home, well, about as much as I know, about as much as you do. I mean, that's... Yes. Well, I mean, if you extended it, that's, that's probably right. Yes, yes. You know, it, it's, uh, 
Yes. Tell us... Um, there's a general knowledge of history and then there's the specifics that you get in the history courses. Exactly. That's quite different. Mm. And uh, But my chief love, of course, was the ancient history rather than the modern. And, uh, uh, though I'd been reading modern history from the time I was first able to read. Because... Uh, we used to go into Anthony Horden's on Saturday mornings for their children's session, but I always went down to the bookshop and I set my eyes on Hamilton's four-volume history illustrated of England and persuaded my grandmother to buy it for me. And so from the time I was about nine, I'd had a pretty extensive background for a child of that age of English history. And, of course, getting to the library at uh, Sydney, Roy's High, I practically started at the top, taking a couple of books out each weekend till I'd read practically every book in the history section at the, at the school. So I had a, a sort of hobby of history background rather than uh, uh, an official one from the university. But at the university, the... Uh, the liveliness of the uh, philosophy department sucked me in completely. And, uh, I became quite engrossed with the issues of philosophy, including side issues where the, the proper preparation for it is the great languages of the past and going down to the present so that one gets a, a full scope mm. ready for a critical approach. But I didn't think that uh, university criticism applied in secondary schools. Secondary schools were there to develop young men and young women. So I had a quite different approach. And while I was at first opposed to Hone's, what I thought was sheer authoritarianism and his strong dominance of the school, along with C.A. Bell, Cabby Bell, who was the master of English. And he, of course, uh, introduced all the great modern writers, Gordon and uh, Eliot and others, uh, to uh, even junior classes at the school. Things amazed me. So that although I could see the cane well in the background and... Hone cane boys practically every day when I first came, even being twice late and arriving at school in the morning and things of that sort. Uh, I soon found that there was a completely other side to him, uh, pastoral care. And when he introduced the headmaster of uh, Marlborough College, he talked to us about pastoral care. I suddenly got a, a different picture of the uh, way that uh, pastoral care was providing a variety of experiences to boys. And uh, I noticed how Hone tried to find jobs for practically every boy in the school. And through the library, of course, we were able to offer quite a bit because we had something like three boys in each year in the library group. And we had them helping with all sorts of things because in those days there were no professional librarians. So I had to be in the library at lunchtime, quite often at break, and uh, after school, immediately after school, because they were very busy times. And boys had to help so that I could, particularly on Mondays, because the... Uh, Staff meetings were held in the, the break at, uh, for any announcements for the week and I had to come down and have morning tea and hear what was going on and had to get the boys to look after the library while I wasn't there because I didn't want to have it shut. I tried to keep the idea of it being open all the time. And so, so just was a, where was the library at that time? Now the library was in room 13 at that stage. I was in 14, which was beautiful room 
above the top of the buildings which had the view all the way down to the harbour bridge. And I could uh, sometimes set chaps to work and get sit and get warm quickly in there before I walk around and watch what they were doing over their shoulder uh, in the class. It was a beautiful room, and the library room was next to it, and Hone had improved that by buying up some splendid timber shelves and getting George Eccles, the cleaner, he found out that not only... Uh, sorry, the, the grounds. Ground not only that he was good at being, doing the grounds, but he knew how to do veneer work on the shelves. So we had the shelves, but he had it, quite a number of them still locked. So I came in one Saturday, and with the help of two of the librarians, we removed the glass cases and put them in the little storeroom, which we had round the corner. After which I was summoned to the office and asked why I did to do this. And I'm afraid I did tell him on that occasion because I knew he wouldn't let me. <laughs> he was a great preserver of books and certainly kept a handful of rare books that we were given, uh, including an early edition of the uh, New South Wales Gazette, locked away in two little cupboards uh, underneath the display cases. But I didn't want things like that put out for everyday use, but I wanted the rest of the library to be in Dewey order and forward on the shelves, as I knew from library practice elsewhere. So I was allowed to get away with it. You're allowed and to get away with that one, We did yes. have the library set out mm. in correct Dewey order from beginning to end, mm. and we got rid of the locked cupboards and the idea. And then our chief thieves in school were the boarders. They weren't real thieves, but they just thought that any book that was on the library shelf they could take back to their rooms. They could borrow. So... As I was a frequent visitor to the studies, I just used to go around and borrow them back again and put them on the shelves. And I think we greatly reduced the stealing that went on and uh, got a proper sort of interchange. Uh, people really used the library and it followed the new principles of openness and uh, the uniformity of it. And we introduced lessons that I tried to talk to boys in their library periods in years one and two in the first and second years in secondary about each section in each of the ten sections uh, and tried to get boys to borrow one book from each of the ten sections of the library during the year that they were with us so that they got some idea of the scope of the library and found some interest in varied parts of the library, that sort of thing. So in that way, I came into contact with all the boys coming into the school, and as the numbers were under 300 when I started, that was possible. And the biggest change that I've noticed is the growth in numbers, and that, of course, was pressed on by the famous Wyndham report. And uh, the business with Wyndham was... Uh, something that occupied us in the latter part of the period when I came back, with, particularly when Hewan arrived, because the principles that we'd learned in the first part, Mark Bishop and myself, Mark had set up the chemistry labs, actually came in the school holidays and built a chemistry lab, one of which was in this room that we're sitting in now, the other one was down there. And every boy had his own kit in the chemistry labs. And he began by using simple things, using the difference between lemons and oranges for different kinds of acidity found in natural life. Uh, and then building up to the technical terms with their exact definitions later on. And I was fascinated with his work and how he persuaded the... Uh, committees that were meeting to adopt many of his ideas in the chemistry syllabus. But at the same time, I was working on the history syllabus and trying to make sure 
there was nothing about the Industrial Revolution in Australian history when I came here. Uh, and more than one third of the course was spent following the courses of various explorers. So we tried to, I tried to persuade the state committee that each of the major segments of human life, the domestic, the industrial, and so on, should be included in the syllabuses and traced through parallel to the political ones. And the uh, politics, particularly the politics of freedom, development of parliaments, uh, should be taught and boys given some practice in it, and that that was part of the history. But we no sooner sampled each of the major divisions of human life and had a sample of it so that one explorer was studied in detail and he just looked at the map showing the, the other great areas of exploration. And the Industrial Revolution was studied with particular emphasis on the coming of the power engine uh, and how it was introduced into Australia, uh, beginning down in Dixon Street, and the descendants of the man who bought that for the Heath boys was Silver Cranbrook, uh, which gave us a, li a living connection with it. Mm. And I used to try and persuade the boys when we came to deal with that section to actually bring their power engines, and I was surprised that almost a third of the boys in the class had a power engine at home, little power engine their parents had bought them, and understood the the basis of the power revolution that uh, began in England and linked, made Australia uh, no further than one month away from England by boat, and finally, of course, led to the aeroplane and the coming of the new forms of energy. But of course, with the war, the second war coming, uh, atomic energy had become the rage and the talk and, and tried to put it in, in the picture uh, with the other forms of power and what a difference it made to man. But to see it, not just as something startling and terrifying, but it's something that was uh, a part of uh, an evolution in power and provided and didn't go completely foolish like our present American president. We were quite likely to survive it and benefit by it. Well, let's put that sound I'll get on to him. Harry, you've, uh, you've spoken a lot, a lot about change. Yeah. Um, could, you, could you tell us... Um, what were the things that were uh, continuous that you remember during those years, like all the time you were here, the, 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 the thing, the continuities? Cranbrook. You know, uh, the things that kept well, it together? I'm not, not, of course, sure of the last... No, no, just, just at the masters. time that you were here. Uh, though I was interested, the uh, review fairly recently of... Uh, pastoral care, its beginnings as a fundamental part of the Christian teaching. Mm. Gregory and, and bought that. And, uh, so, so pastoral and care. I if I can be assured that it will stop in the library, will I give it to the school? But I found that the we tried to have the section talking about continuity mm. where all the books by past members of the school were kept and past masters of the school, the books that they'd written. But in my quick visit to the library a few years ago, I couldn't see that it had been maintained. It seemed to disappear. Uh, it's one of the things I'd like. That's one of the sorts of continuities that I'd remain. But the continuity at Cranbrook, the uh, humility that was supposed to be taught by the prayer uh, at the founding of the school and which is still the, uh, the main prayer uh, at Cranbrook. I hope that's still there. Still there, Harry. It's still there. Yes, we, 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 and, we say it regularly. Uh, it reminds us, though, in my very last 
year when I came back and had to go to the swimming sport, I had to stand up, up and stop the boys shouting out, We are the greatest, which they were doing straight after another school had just won a record. Our school hadn't clapped uh, the achievement and had replied by a group of youngsters at the back getting up, not led by the prefects, and shouting this awful catch cry that spread around. And I noticed in the school that when I came, the tradition was to clap achievements in the field and to shout Cranbrook's name in unison uh, to encourage the boys. But with the coming of Martin Pitt, instead of that, we had tunnels formed boys crowding round and shouting and then continuing to uh, shout and scream dur during matches and it reached its peak of trouble as far as I was concerned when the French master uh, had to uh, stop parents crying, kill him, kill him. Uh, Which so French boys, master was that? Not uh, George Gassman? George Gassman. Mm-hmm. He had to deal with parents of junior boys shouting. So the Cranbrook has had a tension going on within between its bidding prayer and its uh, actual assumption of uh, behaviours very largely borrowed from America, especially notable. So, so hold on a just before we go on. So, so you... You were just saying that you associated that behaviour with Martin Pitt. It was introduced into school by Martin Pitt, and he was very much influenced by the behaviour that he observed, first of all, uh, at Knox, where they had what they call psyching up sessions for their teams the night before they went into action and tried to introduce this sort of thing here and, and certainly backed up things like war cries and uh, other mass behaviours as opposed to sensible noting of the good and bad that goes on in the, and the appreciation of games for their own sake, not for just whether your school wins or doesn't win. Uh, this tension uh, was mm. very much in the school, although I was only looking after tennis for a good deal of the time. Uh, but, but, but yes, Harry, um, uh, Martin's an old boy, was an old boy, yeah. uh, and he was employed by Mark Bishop. Yeah. So how did Mark react to that? Mark and I had uh, our worries about... Mark believed that you should have people like Martin around, but that the main job of the school was to, to balance, get the thing in. So he, he liked men with a considerable amount of fire, and no one can deny that this is what Martin had, that we both watched, because here was the tension within. But if it went too far on the side that I thought he embodied in the school, uh, it would disturb the, the real traditions of the school, of appreciation of games, of appreciation of excellence wherever it occurred, but also support for the team, showing you were there and you were with them, but but not this mass uh, behaviour, mm. which I think is uh, the end of education. So it's in this way that I, and and right through the school there is the tension between what you might call the good and the bad in, in things, and you've got to be continually wrestling with it to do it. And uh, that conception of uh, good and evil uh, goes back to Anderson's view of the objectivity of good and evil, which he taught us and which he claimed to find support for in uh, English literature and world literature, of course. And uh, he linked it with his uh, theory of quality, uh, quality being the character of things not necessarily uh, 
just excellence where one person surpasses another uh, unduly, but the necessity to maintain certain qualities and things which are, and activities right through the community. So it's my sense for continuity is based on the, the philosophy of it, that they're the things, some of the things that I mm. tend to see as being in Cranbrook, but by no means guaranteed to stay there, and one can only observe them. Uh, when one comes back mm. nowadays, I'm, I'm not sure we'll see how things are going, what the balance is mm. at the moment. Towards the end of... Uh just uh, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about that in a second. But um, yeah. towards the end of uh, I'm talking too much. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You, no. Uh, well, I'm interrupting you. <laughs> yeah. uh, towards the end of Mark's time here, he he wasn't well, and Martin no. took over quite a bit. Yeah. And so, a lot of that sort of behaviour that you're talking about, yeah, was was built up during that yeah. time because yeah. there was one period when Mark was away for six months and. Yes. And Martin was acting headmaster. Yes. And so there, yes, there, there was a certain amount of tension then, yes. Yes. But as I say, it was a, you could feel that differences were being introduced. Mm. The school wasn't what it was. And it was taking its line more from what the other schools like Knox and so on were doing and uh, not enough from within itself. Well, can I just say then, let's just jump to the present because you asked about that. Um, the present campaign for the centenary is is go back to the motto and say that you know, to be, mm. right? for us to be who we are. Yeah. And there's a strong emphasis in the school today about that. And so, and it's, and so we are, we are make, making an enormous effort to main, maintain that balance. Yeah. Yes. Mm. You wrote when Mark retired that uh, that you felt that he was the last of the of the Hone headmasters. Yes. Did you? Hewan well, had been under Hone at uh, Marlborough and sought to keep the ideals that he had. I think he began. He didn't have the same deep interest in the subjects in the school. That uh, Mark Bishop had, that, that uh, Hone had. Hone was interested in every subject and what it could do for boys and tried to uh, visit every type of classroom in the school and participate. And the way he was a teacher of English, he gave himself classes. He rather humorously said that he was glad to teach geometry because it was quicker to mark. <laughs> uh, well, that's but true. he loved coming to the English classes with Bell, particularly the honours classes where they were discussing the most advanced poets and dramatists and, and he allowed me to come and join in some of those discussions. I must have had spares. I must say they were some of the most enjoyable discussions that we ever had. But he also but believed in trying to get a sort of physical grasp uh, did, of each topic that you taught. But one of the days he was teaching the, uh, well, not he, uh, 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 Bill had been teaching them the uh, famous elegy in a country court that uh, churchyard. churchyard. Mm. And uh, the words that caught Hone's imagination most were the was the heaving turf, and with his big shoulders he cut forward and giving the heave to show that he tried everything from cricket to the handling and to the way in which the cricket ball was made and stitched to get the boy to understand it and came down and helped the boys. And he talked to the boys in the uh, games room about how cricket bats were made and the tension that had to be kept in the right kind of wood to be used and uh, how England was particularly fortunate having the yew tree and the rest of it too for the making of these things and the countries 
every point that he took up, he tried to physically do it. And uh, I'd already started, as you know, to try and collect pictures of everything that we did in the history so that the boy would at least have a visual thing. He certainly couldn't get a physical rap of it, but he could see it. And uh, I think by the time we left in the picture sets, we had every period of history covered so that when we taught anything, we could always show something of that period, even if sometimes they were Life magazine's uh, recreations. Uh, but at least of some sort of... Well, they're still there, Harry. They're still there. They're they? still there. Great. Mm. Yes, mm. well, uh, Can I just suggest just... just if they were added to annually, of course, they'd be enormous. <laughs> um, what you said about Hone, uh, I noticed about Mark Bishop. He would he would take a cricket ball yes. or a bat and he'd teach them. He'd go into the nets and he would you know, yeah. he would do it the same way, wouldn't he? Yes. You know, now, yes. now, you're suggesting Hugh and, and he was different? To, he started this business that Mark Bishop tried to keep up of having the... Uh, mirror in the room. In his study. And I think you yeah. did a little bit of it too. Mm. And so even a new boy would be asked to hold the bat in front of the mirror and see himself and Hone would start the instruction about how to hold the bat for certain kinds of bowling uh, so that there was this immediate and grasping reality. Because I remember he was a, teaching. A, a number of and occasions. I hope that that's been kept up, but I don't. I don't know if it's possible with a huge number. I don't think uh, Mr. Sampson has a has a mirror in his um, office, but I no. but I do remember boys who were sent to Mark Bishop, you know, for discipline. Yeah. And they'd come back, yes. and you know, boys would say, or someone would say, you know, did you get the cane? And and they said, no, we had a cricket lesson. Yeah. Yeah. In front of the mirror. Yes. Like, you know, how to, how to hold the ball and play the shots like this. Yeah. I mean, how funny is that? So, yes, the, was, cane, was, the cane fell under uh, great trouble, particularly in Parliament, you remember, during that yes. period. Mm -hmm. And uh, on the other hand, Mark Bishop said to me that certain boys would have been put in jail unless he promised that he would use the school discipline with them. Here, this was an arrangement with the local police. I don't know whether this should be recorded, but he certainly told me that two or three of the boys that were in the upper fifth in that stage uh, should very much uh, owe their being here at the school to his persuading the police that he would deal with them. And... Uh, keep an eye on them. This was in connection with drug taking, which was the other new thing that came in at that stage in the school. So that's... But the other important thing in the, uh, that worked as continuity with the three masters was Hone began having twice a term meetings in which every boy was discussed by the full common room. And even the masters of the physical education were expected to come up and throw some light on it. And Hone was insistent on finding at least one good thing, what was the worst thing, done by each boy before he'd go on. Those meetings sometimes were interminable going on until after dinner arrived at night at six o'clock. And... Uh, I think they then had to be cut down to one a term. I don't know whether they've been continued, but they certainly gave every teacher a picture of every boy that they were teaching uh, and made, made them think of whether there was at least one thing at which they were getting some mastery at school. And Hone was most concerned when he couldn't find out anything about a boy that he was able to achieve and that he wasn't being useful in the tuck shop, even if he was a, a nuisance in the classroom and so on. Uh, it was that picture, every boy in the school. Admittedly, uh, there's a bit of totalitarianism about that. So I was reminded when K.J. Lee 
my friend, the uh, Did you have to explain to the teacher to the of, uh, who, who KJ was. KJ was the teacher of Chinese and Japanese. Uh, he came from Korea, one of the leading families in Korea. His, his brothers were among the uh, hostages taken to Japan. He suffered greatly during that period, and that's partly why he came here. He arrived in 73. To come to a country that was yeah. free. Well, he came here to Cranbrook in 73. Uh, I remember him shaking his head very sadly over these meetings and thinking that it was, uh, he didn't use the word totalitarianism, but it was uh, too much of an infringement of individuality, he thought, uh, to do it. But to me, uh, it was the crowning point, of course, of the Castle, yeah. system here. Yeah. Uh, and Hearn had brought back the report book from Marlborough, introduced it here, and this meant that every boy had to write out the work he did at night, as well as his uh, standards achieved every second week in the schoolwork. And that book could be produced at any time except during the playtimes. He was, he was supposed to be with him everywhere at school, and every master could check and get a quick picture of where the boy was standing. Of course, the same, at it. it's the same today. And every boy could see it, and more than that, the parents could see mm. And they, the parents were required to sign the book. I'd hope that tradition Harry, um, I don't see one here, but the, still they, they, they actually don't call it a report book anymore, which is unfortunate, because yes. I keep calling it a report book too, but they now call it a school diary, and it's exactly the same. Yes. And it goes to, goes with them everywhere. Yes. That's and it great. has all that information still in it. Still there. Yes. Great. Well, I think that's one of the best things about Cranbrook. And I think a number of other schools have adopted it from Cranbrook. Yes, they did. In Can Australia. I, I'd like to but it came from Marlborough. Uh, and it didn't go back to the very beginning of the school, but from Hearn's day on, I think it is one of the unifying mm. principles in the school because it means all the people get a view of the boy and the boy himself has a view of what they see. Mm. Yeah. Well, let me just say, just on that, I think that after Mark left in 85, you will get... Uh, massive changes under Bruce Carter, plus the introduction of computers. And so, yeah. therefore, these, these meetings faded out very quickly because most information then went backwards and forwards through a computer. And, and so it's unfortunate that, that we don't have those meetings, but I think, plus the increased number of the, of the population on mm -hmm. the school premises. Just, um, can I ask you just to say something about your ideas about discipline? Oh. I don't know about the others, but I'm pretty sure I was the first full-time master who didn't use the cane. Um, but I believed more in uh, watching the individual boy and encouraging him in the, the thing that he was best at. And I thought that every boy should learn the history of the thing that he most loved. But the value of history was that like philosophy, it, it dealt with every subject, uh, and uh, at some time or other, I'd try to link up with the boy and show him what his interest was and how it had a history of itself. Uh, that was fairly easy in the days when the school was small, and so I dealt with practically every boy going through the school, but when I came back, of course, it was impossible to keep that up, but I still kept close contact with the boys, uh, and uh, so I think boys did feel that there was a, a difference in attitude. Uh, I believe that the uh, attitude of the master to the boy should be more that of fosterer uh, than it should be that of a disciplinarian, and that if the fostering didn't go on, it would did, no amount of disciplining would do any good anyhow, because there'd be nothing there to, to grow. And essentially, education is uh, growth, and you stimulate it. In most forms of punishment, uh, things that stop growth 
uh, or harm it and uh, should be avoided. That, that's about as far as I can put you on no, that. No, that's one. good, that's good. Um, I want to change, because there's something that's, you're saying something and it's, it's now, I want to go back to. You know, I think it's in 51 and 52, you, I took a couple of years with Hone's suggestion that you should go and work in somewhere else and you went to England? Yes. Now, no. unfortunately, the teacher whose place I was to take fell ill and so I wasn't to go, so I made up my mind to go anyway. anyhow. Mm. And so that was particularly lucky because, again, with Hone's introduction, I was accepted in the uh, London School of Education and there the, the graduates who were doing education uh, were made members of a little select group which used to meet every Tuesday and for almost two terms I went and among the visitors that were brought to the place no other than T.S. Eliot A.S. Neal talking about mm. education I'd read A.S. Neal under the influence of Alan Stout uh, before I came here, uh, my professor, uh, he ran the free school in England, and so we discussed this question of freedom in the school and how important it was for communication in general. And uh, A.S. Neal was brought, and we had a, a wonderful two-hour session with the uh, famous headmaster. But even more important was the meeting with T.S. Eliot, uh, I only asked him one question, whether he thought that poets showed their, at their stability in school, particularly in secondary school, and his answer was no. <laughs> uh, he didn't think it was so. He thought that uh, many people showed flashes of, in reaction to the poetry they were taught at school, but they didn't keep it up afterwards. Uh, he thought it was something that was much deeper. In his own case, it was. It began earlier and went on later. So that was my encounter with Eliot. But I was much more interested in the other things that he was asked. There was a teacher I couldn't help asking him that question. Uh, we also met, and I'm having a blank on his name, the great communist who had been put in charge of the English... Uh, uh, conservation of food and so on during the war and had managed to make England almost independent from food by planting along the highways on the edges of the roads and things and the railways and the railways and uh, working out how much food England would require and working out where it would come so that even if the U-boats had been successful I should remember his name and, uh, I think I suppose I, I was too. quite amazed. He suffered from a kind of scrofula in the hair. <laughs> but uh, his attention to detail and so on was there. Anyone less like a, a fighting communist, I could hardly imagine. <laughs> uh, I'll try and remember and bring you back his name uh, when I go. Sorry. No, no, that's, that's good. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in this. this I mean... That, that whole question about uh, Hone encouraging people to go uh, would appear that, and helping them financially to go, which he helped me yes. when, when I went, that, well, you know, when um, Mark Bishop helped me and the school helped me to gain experience yes. and to widen our horizons. Yes. And you saw that like that too, didn't you? It, well, I was particularly lucky that Alder, the chap whose place I was to take fell ill and so the headmaster came down to London and took me to his club, talked to me for a couple of hours, looked the way Hearn did when he appointed me, and took me straight back to Oundle. <laughs> and so I managed to get two full terms and a couple of weeks into the Christmas term up at Oundle, then went off to Paris for seven weeks and came back the master in charge of the English teaching at uh, Repton was appointed captain of Derbyshire cricket 
and wanted to take the term off. So no, but nothing could have been better for me that I was able to go up and take his classes. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, well, there you go. You see, that's all that wonderful experience. In, in, mm. And it was a wonderful term because the senior classes finished early to do their exams and they had something like uh, five big excursions arranged for the, for after the exams. And I went out and saw the, the Derbyshire the uh, the the uh, great uh, Rolls Royce company up at uh, Derby, and visited three of the com- magnificent country houses up there. Uh, it was a, a luxurious term teaching, I must say, uh, in the best English weather that we had. Uh, no, even got in a few bicycle rides around Derbyshire. So I not only got a vision of a wonderful school, and the two archbishops came down to the school to preach in that time, so I heard, and the uh, archbishop heard that I was there and asked if I could come and have lunch with him. And uh, so he cross-questioned me about Cranbrook, and uh, what I knew of the other Anglican schools in Sydney, um, and, and sent his uh, brother out to uh, meet me when he came over to Sydney afterwards. Hmm. When he, his brother came to Sydney, he didn't come back. Uh, so the accident of not being having a full appointment at one school meant I had a great variety of experiences in a couple of years, and uh, I think in that my experience was very different to everyone else that went. But I think that if people come and start teaching immediately after school, after their, sorry, university work, that they do need to get experience of other educational establishments. It's very, very important. important. Uh, And uh, I have done some formal training in uh, education because the period when I went to the tech, uh, they gave us a one-day-a-week course, and then I enrolled with the MED course at Sydney University and did their courses and uh, came first in their classes. But I was doing so much that... uh, I had a stomach ulcer at the time, sick, and the family uh, kept me fully engaged as well as uh, Grandma this when I came back, so I I didn't finish off the thesis. I just, just couldn't do everything. And anyhow, I was back at Cranbrook by then. And you, 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 you mentioned a minute ago um, cycling through Derbyshire. Yes. Um, and going to Rolls Royce and things like that. Now, that's the, part of your visual. Melbourne is just south of Ripton School. Oh, was it? So I, was, I was able to cycle through the the Melbourne. <laughs> and and so, so this is a visual experience because you the, the places you are say history is a visual thing. You have to. You know, yes. It's evocative. Yes. And so that that must have pleased you to do that. It was absolutely wonderful just to be free for an afternoon. Just cycling through English villages and down the lanes and so on, and to see how much is transposed from there to here, how very much the continuity. Because that's the other problem at Cranbrook, at the Aboriginal question. Uh, because you know, Mark tried the business of bringing two Aboriginal boys into the school. But I don't think they were given a good time in the boarding house by the uh, boys from New Guinea. In fact, I know that they weren't. But their housemaster did do a great deal to uh, look after them. But they Who was that? Who was that? Which well, housemaster? Just remind me. Uh, was that Edgar Castle? No, that was uh, his successor. Uh, David Stone? David, mm. yes. And... Uh, They still felt so homesick that they couldn't stop on at the school. And 
we'd no sooner managed by three years of fighting on that Wyndham to get the Wyndham report through and I had written the uh, outline of the New South Wales syllabus in history and got it in then uh, the New South Wales Premier introduced a rule that one third of the history teaching had to be uh, Aboriginal history now uh, I don't know how much that upset it because uh, largely I'd left by that time but I was very upset that history was picked upon and forced to teach a subject which is really anthropology and not history that there's prehistory but prehistory isn't history and the tradition well, well, that we well, Harry, it, 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 it didn't the tradition continue. of Dinkadides and, mm. and Herodotus that mm. you should have at least two observers mm. of every accident, everything that happens, and someone present uh, who is reporting the incidents to you. And the Aboriginal society never produced it, and at the same time as he produced it, because I was reading the UNESCO reports on the attempt to find out in Africa how much tribes could remember of their history. And it found that after five generations, the memory always changed, and the part beyond the fifth generation back turned into myth and was handed on verbally, but in highly structured mythical form. Uh, it's different. So there is nothing in Aboriginal history, and it's always upset me, Aboriginals make so much use of what they've found out from the study of Mungo Man and elsewhere <coughs> and then insist on taking the, instead of leaving the bodies to be studied further they use the results of the study but try to stop the study by demanding that the bones actually be sent back and buried at the original position. It's a very contradictory position and in a sense an anti-historical position. Uh, whatever we know about the history, the development of different flake forms of tools and so on in Australia over the centuries uh, has been learnt by the application of methods of study developed by Australians. And I think the emphasis should be on the amount of cooperation that developed mm. between the, uh, between us and them. Uh, history is largely about cooperation. Uh, an emphasis which an observation. goes again back to Anderson mm. uh, with his uh, when he introduced us in a course in Marxist philosophy and in the very first lecture he said of course the one of the, the main weaknesses of Marxism uh, was its insistence on class conflict because history is a matter of cooperation of the people passing on the information in the first place and of leaving the remains and using them. Uh, history is the history of class cooperation uh, and Class conflict is the thing which interrupts the history and breaks it down uh, in much the same way as, as punishment breaks down with cooperation between teacher and pupil. Uh, can, can, can we move on? Can yeah. we, let's move on. Um, the, um, the journalist Craig McGregor, who has, oh, who, yes. who has uh, written a book recently, yes, and you figure in that book, Mm -hmm. And he he refers to you as uh, a key influence in his life that uh, and said that you engendered within him an intellectual flowering which has never left him. Yeah, we're still friends, mm. and we meet. He's moved back up country again. We meet sometimes with our best twice a year. And we have a few talks by telephone. Uh, he was in a particularly good year where 
there was much discussion. He was with uh, Jeremy Long. Uh, I think uh, he used to turn to him in the discussions in class on all sorts of subjects uh, and quote him. And I introduced many subjects which were related to the syllabus, but because of their liveliness, and, and two or three other very lively people in that class, a couple of our good architects there, and so on, uh, we began a, a lifelong interest in uh, mainly general social questions. And uh, I was showing him how much they were dependent upon the development of science, philosophy, and, and uh, industry uh, for their development because he was a bit inclined as someone who'd had to find his way into Cranbrook as a, a on uh, payment. Uh, uh, he was a scholar in Cranbrook. He had a kind of inferiority and felt that uh, a great deal of uh, history was really bound up with uh, not exactly Marxian class struggle but in the uh, working classes having to uh, wrestle with the upper class to maintain their existence and he uh, I was able to show him that there were other factors in the and try and get across a pluralist view of things. Uh, managed to persuade him anyhow to go and do philosophy courses in the university as part of his preparation for journalism. But he was again lucky to get scholarship straight away from Cranbrook to uh, the Herald. And uh, so he went straight into journalism, but he had to do his university work at night. Mm. And he never gave it the full attention that he would have, I think, not been a part-timer. How about what you said there about um, introducing other subjects to keep them interested and, and, yes. and explaining things yes. is, is similar to what you, used, what you did when you were here, like introducing a lot of other activities, yes. you know, like jazz club and all those sort of yes. things, and yes. introduce a new magazine. And yes. so that was part of your whole feeling, wasn't it, about education, that you yes. provide them with a plethora of activities and interests. A plethora interest. of activity, because uh, life is interaction. We, uh, we need education itself begins with nurture at the beginning and then goes on to the uh, secondary stage with its emphasis on the pastoral care. And then on to the tertiary stage with criticism. But you've got to have a bit of all three, even at the beginning. Uh, if parents aren't able even to see in the child learning language that needs uh, the best introduction to it, the, the language, right at the baby stage, it, you'll have difficulties with them in the tertiary stage that mm. uh, all three stages overlap but one one emphasis becomes ever so much more important later but as language begins right at the beginning the very beginning of critical view the ability to put with language and thought the very best that's around you into practice is going to be very difficult. Very difficult. Yeah. We, we um, unfortunately, we have to finish shortly, but um, I want to just ask you just one question. I know we've left a lot of things out, and I'm, I apologize for that, but it's been absolutely fascinating because mm. there's so much that you've said this morning that, you know, has A, corrected the record, and B, given us an insight, a greater insight into your thoughts. Um, what... From the, from the position where you've spent all these years teaching and uh, and being an intellectual and all that sort of stuff, um, what would you consider to be a good life? Your definition of a good life? A good life? 
is what uh, Alan Stout used to say, in unum, that somehow bringing together into some unified view and practice of the, the riches that this world has to offer us. No, I think that's wonderful. That, that's something that you've done, and I hope I've done too, for so many people. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you have. Mm. Harry, it's been an absolute pleasure. It was a pleasure and watching you uh, jollily into class, and sometimes uh, whipping with delight. Uh, I hope it still continues. Uh, Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you for coming. Jeremy Maiden, who was headmaster from 2001 to 2012, suggested that Harry was creating a cathedral in his lessons and not simply chipping away at the stone. His commitment to the Socratic method established an enduring example for all to follow and his dedication to maintaining solid educational and ethical standards, whatever the cost, made him the colossus he became. I hope you will continue with me on this journey as we delve into the memories of Cranbrook and the many people who are connected with this great school.